there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 86. One door closes, another opens. As 1917 came to a close, the broad outline of the future struggle for power in Russia was taking shape. The fringes of the empire, some fresh conquests, some older ones, began to break away. Their drift slowed by the Bolsheviks and local Soviets that wanted to keep as much as possible for the people's state beginning to emerge. Elsewhere, a hodgepodge of officers was making the trip to the southern reaches of the Don River to answer Alexeev and Kornilov's call for resistance. Meanwhile, in Petrograd, you had Lenin's government awkwardly inserting itself into positions of authority within what was left of the state apparatus, while Bolsheviks and those in the military aligned to them fanned out across much of the country as quickly as they possibly could in order to assume command of local Soviets and begin dissolving the local Zemsvos. I haven't mentioned them in a bit, but the Zemsvos had still been chugging along, doing their best to keep some semblance of public life going. But their time started to come to a close, as in the cities the Soviets began taking over local controls, and in the countryside the peasants began rampaging across the estates of the major landholders. The entire basis of their existence was fast dissolving. But that isn't to say that Lenin was able to establish a strong, centralized state immediately. Far from it. The Red Government in Petrograd was able to provide direction and receive deference from revolutionaries across the nation as leadership of what was emerging, but Lenin and his inner circle still had a long way to go before they were really in control of the situation. Part of this ambiguity was because there wasn't yet a consensus on what this revolutionary state was going to look like. The Bolshevik leaders, having endured decades of persecution and exile, and finally seeing the potential for their dreams to materialize, wanted to use Russia as a base for a global revolution starting right there, right then. Keep in mind, in late 1917, there was discontent all across Europe, and the prospect for revolution appeared real. The starving central powers appeared especially vulnerable, and if Central Europe and Germany fell to the revolution the rest of the continent would not be in a great spot to resist. Uh, that didn't happen, of course, but the Bolsheviks were really feeling themselves at the time. Much of the rest of the nation's populace, um, not so much. Hunger and cold were still the immediate concerns, as was ending the war with the Central Powers. The Bolsheviks' popular support came not from ideals of global revolution, but from promises of social and material equality at home and the people had not yet consented to Lenin dominating the new government either. For the Russians, who supported the removal of the provisional government, the most popular course of action was to implement that united front of leftist groups, meaning the Mensheviks, Bolsheviks, and the left and right SRs. As I detailed two episodes ago, that wasn't possible anymore, the splits were just too great. However, to the average Russian, these differences were academic, and nothing that couldn't be overcome. It's what forced the Bolsheviks to come to the table when the Railway Workers' Union went on strike, and it's what stopped them from sweeping aside their moderate rivals afterwards. Those leftist moderates, in addition to the now-firmly-shut-out cadets and Black 100s, looked towards the upcoming Constituent Assembly to reverse their fortunes. Remember, the Assembly was intended to be a national parliament to finally hash out a permanent settlement to how Russia would look moving forward. It had been a body authorized by the provisional government, but their overthrow had not dampened enthusiasm for the idea, and the elections for it were still set to move forward. 
it was going to be a last throw of the dice, as the Bolsheviks were consolidating power everywhere with no effective political opposition. It had already been announced back on November 4th, 1917, that the Subnarkum, that Bolshevik left SR cabinet, would be able to pass laws unilaterally, which cut the Soviets right out of the process. This was part of a deliberate strategy by Lenin to defang the Congress of Soviets now that it had served its purpose to legitimize his revolution. The Soviet executive, the leadership council of the Congress of Soviets, on paper had the power to overrule the Subnarkum. And while the Bolsheviks and left SRs controlled that executive, Lenin didn't control them in the same way he did the commissars on the Subnarkum. A move by the left SRs in mid-November intended to empower themselves backfired, though. There was adjacent to the urban Soviets, the peasant Soviet, which, as you might imagine, was dominated by the SRs, what with that party being focused entirely on peasant land rights. The SRs wanted to add the peasant Soviet's leadership to the Soviet executive. This was allowed, but at the same time, more spots on the executive were added for the military members and urban workers, tripling the group's size to 366 members. The executive was supposed to be a leadership vehicle, not a parliamentary body within a parliamentary body. The expansion crippled the executive into inaction and made the Congress even less capable of resisting Lenin. So, when voting for the Constituent Assembly got underway on November 12th, it was seen as a do-or-die moment, and turnout was high. Initially, the results were a very public setback for Lenin. The Bolsheviks had secured just 24% of the vote, against the SR's much higher 38%. Uh, that party had split too recently for the ballots to account for the left-right differentiation, so the two factions were stuck together. That being said, even if the SRs united against the Bolsheviks in the assembly, uh, they themselves wouldn't have a working majority. The Mensheviks got a measly 3%, and the cadets 5%. Uh, the Ukrainian SRs did net 12% of the vote, but the gulf between Russians and Ukrainians over the latter's wish for autonomy made an all-SR alliance very dicey. It was a public rebuke because it demonstrated that the Bolsheviks didn't have the popular backing of Russia, but it wasn't overwhelming enough to crown a successor to them. Plus, Lenin was still in charge of the sitting government and moved the Subnarkum to begin blocking attempts to actually convene the assembly. On November 20th, it was announced that the opening would be indefinitely delayed, and on the 23rd, three electoral commissioners were arrested and imprisoned for six days while being replaced by Bolsheviks. This all finally set off the opposition to actually, you know, do something, and on the 28th, the day the assembly was supposed to have opened, around 50,000 protesters showed up outside the Torda Palace. They demanded the assembly be allowed to open and even forced the way for 45 members of the elected assembly to enter the palace and make a symbolic gesture of stating the assembly's opening business. It didn't go anywhere beyond that, but it was, you know, a nice gesture, I suppose. Meanwhile, the entire affair was blamed on the cadets, and their party was denounced and banned. Mass arrests of cadet leaders followed, and Lenin shrugged off criticism by stating the cadets were merely a tool of the bourgeois and ergo eligible for destruction. They were in the era of the proletariat, and such groups no longer had a place in political life. The fun didn't stop there, though, and in the next few weeks, the arrests spread to the moderate socialists as well. 
This was the start of newer, tougher internal security measures that the future Soviet Union would become notorious for. One very important moment was the establishment on December 5th of an all-Russian extraordinary commission to combat counter-revolution and sabotage, normally shortened to just the Cheka. This agency was the spiritual successor to the Tsarist Akrana and was the first secret police organization set up by the Bolsheviks and would permutate with different names all the way up to the FSB of modern Russia. The mission statement of the group was straightforward. The revolution needed protecting against internal class enemies like the bourgeois cadets and the other miscellaneous reactionaries. The leader of the organization was one Felix Zhezhinsky, a Bolshevik with an above-average grudge against the old order. He was an ethnic Pole from Belarusia who had spent his entire adult life either in exile abroad or imprisoned at home. His first fiancée had died of tuberculosis while both of them were in Switzerland, an event that drove him further into the life of a revolutionary. In 1910, he married his wife, Sophia, but she was wanted just as much as he was and wound up giving birth to their son in a jail cell. She was exiled to Siberia, leaving Zhezhinsky to raise their son with her family, all the while dodging the Akrana himself. It turned out he was pretty good at evading them, but was finally caught at the end of 1912. He suffered torture and mistreatment during his imprisonment, which included a permanent disfigurement to his face and jaw, but was released in the aftermath of the February Revolution. He joined the Bolsheviks and rose through the ranks, in no small part because he strongly backed Lenin. He was on the MRC during October and afterwards took over security duties, which led to his appointment as the head of the Cheka. And in the hands of Zhezhinsky, the Cheka would become one of the most active, if not terribly popular, mechanisms of the new state. Membership ballooned and within a few years was in the hundreds of thousands, with branches in most every major city in Russia. The organization committed itself to rooting out any elements in Russian life that seemed opposed to the revolution. Basically, they figured a strong offense was a good defense. Zhezhinsky wasn't shy about this either. He openly laid out before the Subnarkom on day one that the new agency was meant to fight an internal war and would employ the tactics of terror to keep those wavering in line. There were very real enemies, enemies who, especially among the bourgeois, would prefer to remain anonymous, only to work against the new state quietly or at a future date. To many Bolsheviks, this was all horrifying and not at all in step with their ideals. But to Lenin, this was exactly what was required, and he gave Zhezhinsky his full support. And by December, it was Lenin who was running the show. The moderates, including the ones I'd mentioned previously, like Kamenev, Zinoviev, and Rykov, were unfortunately kind of soft men. They had their uses and could manage an office and drum up support, but now that there was an actual revolution and actual fighting going on, the far more strong-willed Lenin and Trotsky were driving events. So that meant there was to be a political terror before the proper civil war could even get going. In the eyes of Lenin, this was entirely necessary, as the revolution was still so fragile. And there was still the matter of the Constituent Assembly, which people were still urging to go forward. The Bolsheviks and left SRs had demanded on December 22nd that the assembly could only be assembled if it agreed to subordinate itself to the Congress of Soviets, which they controlled and would defeat the entire purpose of the assembly, and it showed that they weren't going to give up their power under any circumstance. It turned out not to matter nearly as much as everyone had been expecting for the past several months. On January 5th, 1918, 
the assembly finally opened against the backdrop of martial law in Petrograd. The Bolsheviks had brought in their most loyal troops to hold the streets around the Torida Palace, the Kronstadt sailors, the Latvian riflemen, and the Red Guards. The day didn't start well, as a group of protesters, some 50,000 strong, were fired upon by Red troops, killing 10 and wounding dozens. The opposition made much of this, accusing the Bolsheviks of being the same kind of butcherers as the Tsarists. But still, the opening went forward, and at 4 p.m., the session started. And it didn't go well either. The SRs tried to kick off a debate over the future government, but the Bolsheviks in attendance just caused a ruckus and drowned most everybody out. This went on for a while until the leader of the Kronstadt sailors stepped forward and presented the Declaration of the Rights of the Working People, which was a resolution on the nature of the future government that had been penned by Lenin himself. The details, if adopted, would formally make Russia a Republic of Soviets and would also abolish private property and introduce universal labor conscription, which that last part was directed very pointedly at the bourgeois. This resolution was defeated by almost two-thirds of the body in a vote, and the Bolsheviks and left SRs walked out. Not out of the building, just the room, mind you. The far-left members deliberated, and it was Lenin who announced that by rejecting the declaration, the assembly had opened itself to attack and could be safely dissolved. While his SR allies waffled, the decision was mostly made for them. Lenin forbid the use of violence so as not to provoke them, but troops entered the assembly all the same and closed it down. The Bolsheviks left, the Red Guards moved in, and the remaining representatives were allowed to run out the clock all the way to 4 a.m. for the only session of the Constituent Assembly. Those who remained tried to ram through laws and bills, everything that had been delayed and squashed for the past year. The final efforts of liberal Russia in those hours were obviously performative and ended when the leader of the Red Guard unit in the palace took the floor and announced that since the palace guard was tired, the session was adjourned. The representatives tried to ignore the request, but the guards started flashing their guns, and the session finally ended at 4.40 a.m. It never met again. Three days later, the Third Congress of Soviets convened and immediately passed Lenin's declaration and all other business presented by the Subnarkum. The event passed with barely a whimper. When one member of the assembly was asked if it would be defended, he responded by saying that it would be up to the people which was to say, no, it wasn't going to be defended. Intellectuals and bourgeois bemoaned the nation's turn from democracy, but they were not in the majority, and more besides, had amply demonstrated over the past year not to hold any special font of public support that made their ideas more desirable. The right SRs would go back to the countryside to rally support for democracy, but would get the cold shoulder from their own peasant base. Lenin had commandeered land reform as a big issue from the SRs at the start of the revolution, and that's what the peasants had cared about. What would a civil war over a hypothetical democracy earn them? With his political rivals firmly isolated, Lenin had secured at least the capital and much of Russia's core heartlands. But there was still one little detail that nagged at him and his comrades that had to be taken care of and couldn't be intimidated away or isolated politically. Russia was still being invaded, and the Germans were getting increasingly annoyed at still fighting in the East when it was clear they had won. And the Russian people were kind of in agreement on that one. The war had to end. But how was it to end? That was a grave question that had already destroyed the Tsar and the provisional government both. Back on October 26th, Lenin had declared to the Soviet Congress his decree on peace, which 
called for all nations to cease the fighting and end World War I. Nobody responded to it, and in fact, each faction had downgraded Russia to at best being a second-tier player in world politics, with nobody wanting to be the first to engage with the new Bolshevik government. Peace would have to be actively pursued. And this all wound up exposing deep divisions among the Bolshevik leaders, who feared that a lasting peace between Russia and the Central Powers would doom their revolution. I spoke earlier about their hopes that the revolution would spread across Europe, and that wasn't just a hope. It was seen as a necessity to their own long-term survival. Even according to Lenin, Russia was just industrialized enough that it could spark a revolution. But in order for it to survive long-term against the overwhelming economic superiority of the capitalist world, it had to expand past Russia and incorporate the advanced economies found further west. The idea wasn't just to bring the capitalists to the table, but have their people rise up and force them to the table. At least, that was the idea in the first few months. But by 1918, this was looking like an increasingly remote prospect. The horrors of World War I had been bad, but the people of Europe stuck to their masters at that moment. Lenin, as per usual, was the one to face reality head-on and do the unpleasant work that needed doing. He conceded that not only was a massive revolution outside of Russia looking unlikely at that moment, but that the Russians themselves were not yet in a place where they felt compelled to defend their own revolution. And with the central power still advancing into Russia, most conspicuously towards Petrograd, they had to protect what gains they had made. While the Germans had happily allowed Lenin and the others to cross their territory in order to destabilize the country, now that that had been accomplished, there weren't any common interests between the Kaiser and the Reds. Lenin laid out that a separate peace was needed to consolidate Russia and prepare for the revolutions that would surely follow in the aftermath of World War I. Which, to be fair to him, that last part wasn't naive or a dishonest bit of maneuvering. As we've covered in great detail, there were revolutions in a lot of Europe in the years to come, just events kind of got away in the Bolsheviks, which prevented them from getting involved in those. Anyway, uh, Lenin confirmed that territorial concessions to the Germans was on the table. The start of the peace process commenced on November 15, 1917, with a general armistice with Germany and an agreement to begin negotiations. The Bolsheviks wanted to conduct the talks in Skov, but Germany was in control of the situation, and they were instead held in Brest-Litovsk, a former Tsarist fortress city now serving as a German headquarters in the east. The composition of the delegation was carefully selected for maximum propaganda impact, with not just Bolshevik and SR delegates, but actual soldiers and workers among them. One element of society that wasn't carefully selected was the peasant they dragged along with them. They had kind of forgotten about the peasants, which, yeah, says a lot, but before their train took off, they found one guy about to head back to his village and convinced him to tag along. The guy was initially out of his element, rubbing elbows with German nobility, but eventually settled in well enough during the fine dinners served alongside the even finer wines. So yeah, it was a deliberately ramshackle operation. One member, Karl Radek, threw propaganda leaflets from the train window at German soldiers and told them to mutiny against their officers. Another SR rep recounted her assassination of a czarist governor to the Germans. The leader of the delegation, Adolf Jaffe, who for those of you with sharp memories will remember I mentioned last series as the Soviet diplomat who established relations with the KMT, told the Germans directly that he hoped to raise the flag of revolution in their empire too. 
Despite the differences of opinion, the Germans agreed to keep the armistice and continue the talks. However, they only agreed to a one-month armistice. Lenin had been gunning for a six-month break in hostilities so as to give some bonus time for that hope-for revolution. In order to drag out the talks as much as possible, Lenin sent in the guy most in love with his own voice, Trotsky. Trotsky's entire mission became chewing up as much time as possible and stalling the negotiations. The entire back half of December was eaten up by his wrangling with the Germans over both the wording of the proposed treaty and debates over philosophical approaches to the negotiations, including impromptu Marxism lessons. By Christmas 1917, Hindenburg and Ludendorff were fed up with their own diplomats' lack of progress and correctly determined the Bolsheviks were stalling. Talks broke down, and Trotsky returned to Petrograd. There now emerged three schools of thought to the peace process. Lenin wanted to just give the Germans what they wanted and end the damn thing so as to get on with solidifying the revolution. Trotsky basically wanted to bluff the Germans by presenting them with the foreboding prospect of going so deep into Russia that they would get swallowed up as they collapsed back in the West. A third option was presented by Nikolai Bukharin, which was embrace the German attack and settle into a guerrilla war against them. Bukharin represented the far-left viewpoint where it didn't matter that the revolutionary government might be destroyed, the guerrilla war against the Germans would instead spread not just across Russia, but Central Europe as well. It was an extreme case of wishful thinking, and his later realization that he had been wrong would start Bukharin's swing towards the right wing of the Bolshevik party. The Germans had ideas all their own. The Kiev Soviet, aligned with the Bolsheviks, had taken control of the city in January 1918, forcing the Rada to flee. And since the Rada wasn't strong enough on its own and couldn't turn to the Whites if it still wanted to break away, they turned to the Germans as their new patron. On January 27th, they signed a treaty with Germany, with the Central Powers recognizing Ukrainian independence and placing them under their protection. On the 28th, just the next day, Trotsky rolled back into Brest-Litovsk and declared that there would be, quote, no peace and no war, meaning that Russia would unilaterally be leaving the war, but would not submit to a treaty. The Germans kind of looked at each other and just said, okay, good for you. Trotsky thought his bluff strategy would work and reported back to Petrograd on January 31st in a very good mood, which was indeed shared by others. Word out of Brest was that Russia was out of the war, sparking excitement even among the peoples of the Central Powers. That same day, though, Hindenburg laid out to the Kaiser that no treaty had actually been made, so there was still a war on. Five days later, on February 18th, 1918, the Germans and Austrians resumed their attacks all across the front. Just a little tidbit, we jumped into mid-February there because January 31st, 1918, was the last day Russia was on the Julian calendar. There was a two-week skip when the Bolsheviks changed over to the Gregorian one. All the dates presented to you so far would have actually taken place two weeks later in the Western calendars. Fun, but don't dwell on it. Anyway, a half million German and Austrian troops stormed through Ukraine, and a separate German attack went 125 miles towards Petrograd. Nowhere was there significant resistance, and the Russian army was in full flight. The enemy advance raced along the railways, only pausing to stop to drop off sufficient troops to seize the towns with train stations before moving on. Lenin again pressed the Bolshevik Central Committee to give the Germans what they wanted, namely the western territories they were already losing control over. But the committee again, in this one instance, successfully resisted Lenin. The reasons admittedly were several. Nobody wanted to be the ones to actually surrender. 
Also, making peace was an open admission the revolution wouldn't be heading west anytime soon. And with the fall of the Tsar, the German Kaiser had become the biggest enemy of the global proletariat. Cutting deals with him was a distinctly unpleasant prospect. But the pressures of the German advance forced the holdouts to give in. On February 23rd, the Bolsheviks received the German ultimatum. It demanded the Baltics, most of Belarusia, Ukraine, and access to oil from Baku. And also at that point, it was clear that the German influence would extend to Finland and the Caucasus. It was one of the most damaging surrenders of all time, but the necessity seemed clear. Except even then, Trotsky, Zerzhinsky, and Bukharin all said to reject it. Lenin threatened to resign his position, and it looked like maybe the Central Committee could secure a little independence. Even Stalin, whom I haven't talked about all that much because he's mostly just been seconding everything Lenin's been saying, said at first not to cave. But during deliberations, the nerve of the others broke, and Lenin's didn't. Stalin went back to Lenin's side, Trotsky abstained his vote, and Lenin carried the day with the ultimatum being accepted. Lenin went before the Soviet executive over the Torita Palace to announce the details on the evening of the 23rd. The executive members were not happy and called Lenin a traitor. Lenin retorted that if he had 100,000 dedicated revolutionary troops, he'd still go head-to-head with the Germans and ask the executive if an army like that could be assembled. And that shut them up real quick because it couldn't. The group voted in favor of the German demands, and Lenin hurried to tell them the terms were accepted. Just as nobody in Germany wanted to sign the Versailles Treaty in a little over a year's time, nobody in Russia wanted to sign the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. A man named Grigory Sokolnikov was dispatched after he tried to convince people to send Zinoviev to do it, and instead got stuck with the task himself. Trotsky resigned as Commissar of Foreign Affairs, and Lenin would appoint him as Commissar of War afterwards, a role he was going to have way, way more success at. The Germans then took their turn to delay the signing in order to buy time to enter Kiev and also add some gains for their Turkish allies in the Caucasus. Karl Radek, still part of the delegation, snapped bitterly that the Entente would do the same to the Germans, which was kind of true. But oh man, was the treaty brutal. Russia lost 1.3 million square miles of land, representing centuries of conquests on the western frontiers. A quarter of the population was stripped away, along with a third of the pre-war industry and grain fields. The Russian army was set to be demobilized, and the internal propaganda against the Central Powers was forced to be quieted. It also isolated Russia from the Entente. Whatever contact between the Bolshevik government and the West was distanced further as the Entente shut down economic links with Russia. They had bailed on the war, now they would be pariahs to all. And to a man, the Bolsheviks were crushed. They had given up more than they could have dreamed of, stunted their own future, and abandoned their own ideals of fighting the capitalists to the finish. It was unknown if the Germans would even honor the treaty now that it had actually been signed. It wasn't like there was anything stopping them from going further if they wanted to. Fearing that the Germans might still continue their march on the capital, Lenin issued a secret order on the 26th to move the capital from Petrograd to Moscow. The move was conducted in secrecy, and on March 10th, Lenin, Stalin, and Dzerzhinsky left on an unlit train, also carrying the Latvian riflemen, the only sure defenders Lenin had left. It was ignominious, but it was also worth it. The constant pressures of war had broken Russia, and even if the Germans had suicidally dove deep into the country and overextended themselves, it would have also been the ruin of the revolution. They weren't sure about it at that exact moment, but the Germans were no longer an immediate threat. And just as Lenin predicted and argued to his fellows, 
the success of the Central Powers was temporary. Before the year was out, the empires of Central Europe would be gone, and the majority of what was given up would be regained. To Lenin, it had always been a tactical decision, and this breathing room was vital in consolidating the new state. The future priorities would be constructing a new army, a Red Army, and after that, to confront the white threat growing in the South, which is where we'll be picking back up. Join me next week as the Russian Civil War gets properly underway and the first battles of the Reds and Whites are fought. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.